Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning, church. I'm excited to see uh, several new faces this morning. We want to welcome you to Redemption's Hill Church. Also excited to have our um, upper elementary or upper school with us this morning. You seem very excited to be mentioned, yeah. Um, We're really happy to have you here today. Um, Honestly, during the worship, it was beautiful to hear the kids' voices intertwine with the adults. Um, I know you guys still have some more in the tank. We're going to have more opportunity to worship later. Um, Feel free to let your voice go hoarse a little bit later. That's fine. Um, So as as I said, um, my name is Blake Sellers. I'm an elder here at Redemption's Hill Church. Um, My wife and I have been a part of Redemption's Hill We've been members since 2014, which is a long time now. Um, We were thinking back to that um, a couple of days ago and just all of the things that we've experienced in the last 14 years, or sorry, the last eight years, um, things that we've been able to experience with you. um, It's been incredible. And um, I just want to uh, take a moment to point out our missional communities for those of you um, who have not been with us for very long or who have not yet joined a missional community. Um, my wife and I serve in a missional community um, along with the, alongside the Tweeties at, at their home. Um, but our missional communities are this space for us during the week where we can, um, we can interact with the Word of God, where we can um, encourage one another in the Word, where we can uh, really push or challenge one another to uh, put off the things that we've been striving for, that we've been running to, that aren't of Christ, uh, that are holding us back from experiencing new life in Him. Uh, We do that with our children. Um, We do that usually with some food involved. Um, It's a great time of fellowship and of growth. And if you aren't a part of one, uh, feel free to reach out to somebody at the connection table near the front door or uh, someone here that looks maybe like they know a little bit what's going on this morning. We'd be happy to share that with you. Uh, They do meet during the week in people's homes Um, at different times and and days, depending on the MC. Hopefully one will suit your schedule, and uh, you will find a location that you can really uh, dive into and pour in deeply. We're happy to have you here today. Is that me moving around, TJ? Do you hear that? Okay. Move less. Okay. All right, we'll get there. Um, So this morning we are in the, uh, just the second message in our series of the book of Hebrews. And uh, the title of this series is called Jesus the Better, or Jesus is Better. Um, As the title of this series suggests, throughout our time in the book of Hebrews over the next 35-ish weeks, we're going to be hammering home this one overarching theme over and over and over again, that Jesus is better. Um, The author of the book of Hebrews, he's focused in his message. He presents this to us over and over. He'll regularly take examples of of figures from the Old Testament or institutions from the Old Testament, along with many other ideas throughout Hebrew history that have been placed in an elevated status. The writer of Hebrews will show us over and over again that Jesus is and always has been the fullest and truest representation of all things. So speaking for the elder team and elder candidates, your pastors are excited to walk through this book with you. We're excited to be able to spend the next 35-ish weeks in this writing because this book serves as this beautiful bridge between the Old Testament 
and the New Testament. It unites really all of Scripture. Beginning this past January, we started wading through the deep and far-reaching theology found in the book of Romans. That book is, is a collection of some of the most comprehensive theology that outlines how deep belief in Jesus transforms the very recesses of who we are, changes our very identity, and it gives us a new identity as a new creation, bringing us from death to life. The book of Hebrews, it's going to help build on that transformational power of the gospel and show us very clearly the transformational person of Jesus Christ. And this gives us confidence in, in the firm foundation that our faith, our faith rests upon, who our faith rests upon. It's not just a, a compilation of many ideas or ways of thinking. Our faith rests upon one, and that's Jesus Christ. In this book of Hebrews, it will draw our attention to Christ's supremacy, not just his supremacy in the New Testament, but also throughout the Old Testament. From the beginning of human history and eternity before and throughout eternity to come, Jesus is supreme. The book of Hebrews, while a New Testament book, it will require us to uh, open up the Old Testament ideas, Old Testament institutions, as the book continually, specifically, directly references section of the Old Testament scripture over and over again. And hopefully, by the time we are done, throughout these 35 or so weeks, we will come out the other side with a deep understanding of a victorious and powerful Savior who has been that way for all of time. So this morning, we will be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Uh, last week, TJ covered verses 1 through 4. Those are up on the podcast. Uh, so if you did miss that sermon, I definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, it's available on Spotify and iTunes and a lot of other places. But as I said earlier, the book of Hebrews, it's going to address specific figures or institutions that might be familiar to you if you're familiar with the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, we'll do our best to familiarize you through these sermons. But the, the basis for the whole book is to, to use the old, or to see that the Old Testament is uh, fulfilled through the person of Christ. So today our passage in particular will focus on, the, um, on, on angels. Um, if you have read this passage already, I hope that many of you have, uh, TJ does post questions on Mondays before the coming Sunday sermons just to help us to interact with the text, uh, maybe get ourselves thinking before the word is proclaimed on Sunday morning. But if you have read it already, then you probably have a lot of questions, and hopefully we can get to those answers today. Uh, so the, our passage is going to be on the screen this morning, again, Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, I will make his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved, upright, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all parts of your word are for our, uh, for our understanding. They've been breathed out by you, for, that are, and they are good teaching. God, they are words that we can stand upon and understand as true and beneficial. God, I pray today that your word, which is alive, has breath breathed into it, God, would be alive in us this morning, that it would transform us, that it wouldn't just be a dead academic research, but God, it would be a live, living, breathing document that, that changes who we are. God, help us to love you and submit to you and see your love for us through it. Amen. While reading this passage in RMC this past Sunday, the reaction for most, if not the whole room, was, what? Okay, so basically the question that we were met with initially is why the emphasis on angels? Why is the author of Hebrews talking about it so much and even maybe more confusingly, why is he using rhetorical questions and then not, not answering them? Why is there this whole compare and contrast thing going on showing the superiority of Jesus over the angels, and why does that matter? As a quick reminder from TJ's sermon last week, if you weren't able to attend or catch it on the podcast yet, the original audience for the book of Hebrews is fairly newly converted followers of Christ. And these newly con new converts, they are Jewish by lineage. And these new believers, they're also under heavy, heavy persecution. This persecution ranges from physical harm to being social outcasts as well as economic struggles brought on by their belief in Jesus Christ. These new Christians, they're, they're questioning and contemplating just giving up on this whole Jesus thing, just going back to an easier life following their old traditions and beliefs, traditions and beliefs that their family members, that their ancestors still do and have always believed. Going back to uh, my traditions and beliefs, when I was a child, my great uncle would give me money for my birthday or for Christmas. Well, actually, he would give me a card that probably had some very kind and heartfelt message in it. But inside the fold of the card, surrounded by probably a heartfelt message, was the payoff I was focused on. Inside the card was money. Not just any random amount of money. It was always the same denomination of currency every single occasion. You're probably a little bit ahead of me. Maybe you received a similar gift. It was a $2 bill. Maybe you didn't receive a $2 bill, but maybe it was like a silver dollar, or if you're a little bit older, a, Sacage or a little bit younger, a Sacagawea dollar coin. Now, at the time when I first received these gifts of $2 bills, having any money in my possession that was for me to decide what to do with was very exciting. And in the early 
and mid-90s, you could actually buy something meaningful for $2. Well, I mean, by meaningful, I mean to a six-year-old. You could go to Ben Franklin's craft store. I sound so old right now. <laughs> you could go to Ben Franklin's craft store and buy an entire brown paper bag full of penny candy for $2. You could buy multiple packs of baseball cards that could have your favorite star in them for $2. And you could buy a bunch of Matchbox cars. Not Hot Wheels, those were too expensive. But Matchbox cars for $2. Seriously, so old. But the thing is, I never spent these $2 bills. As a child, the thing about receiving the, this specific denomination of currency, these $2 bills, is that they had this air of rarity about them because you didn't see them very much. They were unique. I had assumed that because of this rarity and uniqueness that they were actually worth far more than the $2 that was printed on the front. I'm sure I made the poor financial decision as a child to trade $5 for a $2 bill. That action incurred a $3 loss, but I didn't believe that that was true. Whoever traded, whoever was the other, on the other side of that trade, I'm sure knew. <laughs> it wasn't until I got older that I realized that all of my $2 bills that I had been saving or trading for, <laughs> all this time they were worth exactly $2. Or the same as two $1 bills. Or the same as eight quarters. A $2 bill is only worth $2. And in fact, there were lots of denominations of currency that were far more valuable than my $2 bills. I had been far more willing to spend the $1 bills, the $5 bills, the $10 bills, the very rare occasions, the $20 bill that I had received because I knew that these other denominations of currency didn't have any sort of special quality or uniqueness about them outside of the number that was printed on the face of them. But now I know. If you look at my savings account, it's not full of two, $2 bills. I, don't, I think the only $2 bills we have in my, in my home were actually given to me by my family to my kids. And now that I've learned the true value of the $2 bill in relation to other denominations of currency, it would be silly of me to go back to the way of thinking like I did as a child. To operate as if those $2 bills were somehow more valuable than other clearly superior things. Sometimes our perception of value doesn't align with reality. Sometimes we hold beliefs and elevate some things over others even though the other things are clearly superior. Sometimes it could be tradition that clouds our perception of value. Sometimes it's culture that clouds our perception of value. Sometimes it's our circumstances or trials or difficulties. Sometimes we just can't see that value clearly. Sometimes we trade what is more valuable for something that holds less value. I'm not just talking about valuable things and dollar bills. Sometimes what we trade is for our worship. This book of Hebrews is a call for us to see clearly, to believe in the ultimate fulfillment of all things in the person and work of Jesus Christ, to make sure that Jesus is the object of our worship, which again brings us back to the question in Hebrews 1 that we answered that I still haven't answered. Well, why angels? So to kick us off this morning, I want to lead us in a little bit of a group activity to help us answer this question. I'd like everyone to close their eyes. Remember, I can see you, so please 
play along, close your eyes, and take a moment and imagine an angel. Their physical qualities and features, things that come to mind, things that maybe have been formed by popular culture or classical art or things like that. What comes to your mind? Imagine what they look like. Imagine maybe what they're doing. Also imagine how you feel with an angel in your close proximity. What's the vibe being so close to an angel? As you do that, I'm going to read from Daniel. I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold around his waist. His body was like stone, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished brass, and the sounds of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them and they ran and hid. And then also Ezekiel, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on, the four si on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings, thus their wings touched each other. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an, of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Okay, you can open your eyes if you haven't already. Who in the room matched their imaginations perfectly to the descriptions in Ezekiel and Daniel? Somebody raise their hand. No. All right. I'm betting zero for 60. What did many of us imagine? Maybe a Cupid-like creature? A chubby baby holding a harp or bow? Or maybe, maybe it's, it was more distinguished than that. Maybe more like a Roman soldier character with massive wings. Did anyone correctly produce the image of the four-faced man of stone with four wings covered with eyes and moving so quickly they were like flashes of lightning? No. So maybe our understanding of angels isn't quite what the early Hebrews would have been. And, and what about your reaction to an angel standing before you? When I asked how you would react, did, did anyone imagine themselves pulling out their phone and taking a photo or video? I mean, if that happened, we, we actually might do that, or at least we think. But in Scripture, basically every encounter that humans have with angels, it includes some combination of downright terror, which results in this posture of submission and worship, bowing face down on the ground right where you are, 
just hoping that this awesome creature doesn't destroy you. Those are the angels that we're talking about here. They are amazing creatures. And the early Hebrew, or the early Christians who had this lineage from this Hebrew uh, ancestry, they, they loved and were obsessed with these awesome, incredible physical forces that are angels. If we remember even to the Christmas story in the New Testament, Luke 2, if you can kind of picture Linus say, reading it out loud, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The biblical description of angels and the response that they evoke is maybe more akin to the upside down in Hawkins and Stranger Things than it is this depiction that we understand from classical artwork or precious moments, figurines, or Valentine's Day cards. But these are the angels that Hebrews is referring to. So for this passage to resonate with us whatsoever, we need to strip away our preconception of what angels are and the purpose they served and, and do still serve. Because if, if we make this comparison of Jesus is better to something that is inferior, then we are going to belittle Jesus in our comparison. We want to appropriately elevate Jesus today because him being better than something that is cartoonish is not going to hold the same weight in our minds. Both the Old and the New Testament make clear that angels are creations of God. While they may have distinct privileges and even extraordinary powers, they are by no means divine. Angels reside in the heavenly assembly and are part of the throng worshiping before the throne of God. They sing his praises. The Bible also tells us that angels act as messengers of God and that they carry out his purposes. Angels function as witnesses of, of major redemptive historical events such as the birth of Christ. And they are also angels of God's justice. Angels were placed at the border of the Garden of Eden in Genesis to exact revenge on anyone who would try to eat from the, the tree of life. And if we look forward to Revelation, it indicates that Christ will lead an angelic army in the last day to execute his, his just judgment on the world. The glorious reality that for all of us is that angels are incredible. But angels are sent by Christ. And they are sent for the good work of the church and for God's kingdom. Angels were created things that were to serve the purpose of glorifying the Godhead. They were created for it, to proclaim his name and deeds. And they were tending to the Godhead and worshiping him since before human history. Angels are a good thing, and they're amazing. But while they are good, they are not God. While they are amazing, they can't save you. And they pale in comparison to the superiority of the Son of God. That's what this passage today speaks to. Angels as imposing physical figures who carried out authority straight from the throne of the Almighty, it's not surprising that people would think that they were amazing and maybe even worship them. That's what the, the first century Jews 
and the early Christians had to fight with, misplaced worship. The author of the book of Hebrews, he lays out in verses 5 through 14, kind of in three different sections, how Jesus is superior over the angels. So we're going to hit those now. Uh, Verses 5 through 6, and we'll go into a little bit more detail, speaks to Jesus being superior to angels and that he is worthy of their worship. Angels worship Jesus. Verses 7 through 12 speak to Jesus being eternal ruler, that Jesus was present and active when the foundations of the world were laid and will be present and active as the exalted king for eternity future. He is timeless. Verses 13 through 14 are going to speak to Jesus not just as king of a kingdom, but king of a kingdom that presides over all. He is superior to angels in glory and status and in authority. So directing our attention back to this section of scripture in Hebrews, the author is going to prove his point by asking a series of rhetorical questions. He doesn't just make his point by standing on his own commentary, though. He's going to make his case by pointing us back to the Old Testament. He doesn't just say that, okay, I get that that's what you believed then, but now it's different. But now it's totally different. No, now you don't need to worry about all that the Old Testament stuff because Jesus came and is better than the Old Testament. No, that is not what he is saying, and that's not what we are saying in this whole series. What the author of Hebrews does is cite Old Testament scripture, which not only foretold of Jesus, but sets him supremely above angels and all of creation in the Old Testament as well. All of scripture, the old and new, speak to the glory and the authority of Jesus. So we're going to jump into that today. Verses five through six, we'll put on the screen. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. If we're answering the author of Hebrews rhetorical questions for him, we'll say the quiet part out loud. It's Jesus. Verse five, Jesus is the only begotten son of God whose arrival was announced by the angels in the New Testament and whose arrival was promised by angels in Revelation through Psalms chapter 2. That's the direct quote uh, for verse 5, Psalms chapter 2, verse 7. And then the second part of that, it's Jesus. Jesus is the son to whom God is his father. And that's taken directly from 2 Samuel 14. Verse 6, it's Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn whom all God's angels worship. That's taken from Deuteronomy 32, 43. It's him. Being a son of the most high God is only a claim that Jesus Christ, God the Son, can make. In this section of scripture, the point is that Jesus and the angels are not equals. And Jesus is not merely a better angel or better than the angel but that Jesus Christ is equals only with the Godhead. The very duties and tasks that the angels were given, they were to reflect the beauty and the name that only Christ would give, that only Christ holds. And Jesus himself being God means that one of the angels' primary purposes is to submit to the will of Jesus and worship Jesus. 
Moving on to verses 7 through 12, we'll read those again. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Verse 7 is contrasted with this collection of verses in uh, 8 through 12 here. Angels hold no authority of their own. All the authority that they have is given to them by the Godhead, including the Son. Angels are God's ministers, and they are servants of God. But the Son was not created. He is and was forever and ever, from forever before to forever to come on the throne. He has reigned and will reign loving, righteous, and hating with wickedness. Verses 8 through 9 are direct quotes from Psalm 45. While angels surround the throne of God, Jesus sits on the throne. While angels are sent out, Jesus sent himself out. Verses 10 through 12 are directly quoted from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, highlighting that Jesus himself was present when laying the foundations of the earth. And this idea of Jesus being present from the beginning, this is something that John hammers home in his gospel as well. John 1 opens, he he speaks well to this. He says, in the beginning was the word. That's his word for Jesus. That's how he addresses Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was, nothing, was not anything made that was made. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Jesus, was That's past tense. That's back to creation. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. His light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is called the Word. The creation account says that God spoke, and all that was created came to be from nothing more than his speech. Jesus is the Word. Last week, TJ brought up the Chronicles of Narnia, which I love. He quoted C.S. Lewis. That's not original, but Lewis is wonderful. (laughs) Uh, But he, he specifically brought up that Aslan is the Jesus character of the book. Aslan's qualities, if you read the books, they're confounding. He is both gentle yet terrifying. He is both near and and present, but all over and all encompassing. And in in one of the books of the series, it's called The Magician's Nephew, Aslan creates Narnia. It's the creation account of Narnia. (laughs) But it's this lion walking around creating by singing things into existence. The song from his mouth causes grass to exist and multiply, animals to appear out of the earth, mountains to sprout like flowers. It's a beautiful allegory of the mighty and creative power of the Word, the Almighty God. Jesus wasn't just present at creation. He was the very Word spoken by God, which made all things 
Without him was not anything made that was made, John 1 says. Christ is timeless, he is eternal, and he has all authority. Authority above angels, authority over anything and everything. And then verses 13 through 14, Hebrews says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Lastly, the author of Hebrews is going to direct us directly to Psalm 110.1 to answer the question, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand so I can make all of your enemies a footstool? The answer is none of them. But God has said that about Jesus. Jesus sits at the right hand of God and at the name of Jesus, everyone and everything will submit, will bow. Philippians chapter 2 also says this. Essentially, the entire, uh, the entire uh, salvific message is here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other, every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a picture of eternity to come. While our passage this morning, we did spend a lot of time about angels, and the place they held with first century Hebrew Christians as well as throughout Old Testament history. This passage, it's about Jesus first and foremost. While we may not fall into the trap of venerating or worshiping angels, I know that I do and, and we do fall into a trap of worshiping other things. We fall into a trap of worshiping other things more than Christ, lesser things fall into the trap of valuing other things over him. And like my silly example of, of the $2 bill, at times we make a bad trade. Our perception of value can get out of whack. We might attribute things in our circumstance in this present moment to be of greater power, of greater worth, of greater importance. We may attribute that worth, maybe not in our words out loud to others. We may not say it, that our job or, or our politics or our sex or social issues or money or hobby or child's activities are more worthy of our worship than Christ. We may not say out loud that those things hold more sway over our present and our future than Jesus Christ. We may not say it to others. We may not post about that on social media. But we may act like it's true. We may fear like it is true. We may fight like it is true. We may eat like it is true that our worship is misplaced. We may drink like our worship has been misplaced. We may treat others like we believe those things are more important than Christ. I find that more often than not when I'm in this position, when I'm giving a sermon, when I'm preaching, that my messages typically land on worship. But this passage is no exception. 
I've noticed that most of the time that my call to action that I'm trying to speak to you and to myself in, in creating the sermons is to look to Jesus, to see him as worthy of your time and your attention, to be in awe of the Son of God who reigned on the throne for all of eternity past. Turn your attention to, to the ruler who so graciously seated the throne room for a stable. Look to the one who traded the worship and adoration of the angels for the jeers and the mocking of the crowds. God, the son who is exalted above all of creation, but willingly made himself the scapegoat for all of creation. He who is glory and radiance, he took on our shame. My message this morning to you and to me is, is not to feel beat up and crushed by your imperfection, your sin, or your misplaced worship. My message this morning, though, is to redirect it, to look at the perfect, sinless Jesus who alone is worthy of our worship. He is greater than all of our plans. He is greater than all of our fears. He is greater than all of our successes, and he is greater than all of our failures. Jesus Christ is unchanging. When it feels like our circumstance is unpredictable and is always seeking to drown us, the Son of God has always been and forever will be the one who calms the storm. When it seems like our foes rise against us and outnumber us, Jesus makes his enemies a footstool under him and sends the Holy Spirit and the angels to minister to those who are inheriting salvation. This is where our hope lies this morning. It's not in heavenly beings, It's not in physical things. It's not in a wise man who taught love and peace. Our hope this morning is in the Son of God who rules and reigns over all of creation and will show his full glory and victory when all sin and death and pain and sorrow are no more. And they cease to exist because he vanquished them. That is who our hope is in. And that is who our worship belongs to. He's the ultimate fulfillment of every promise. He's the ultimate embodiment of every good thing. Band, you can come back up. We're going to have a lot of opportunity this morning to worship, to, to put into practice aligning our hearts with the beauty of Jesus, with proclaiming him as greater, as greater than our situations, as greater than our failures, as greater than our fears. And we're going to have a lot of opportunity to proclaim who he is specifically. There's a song that Garrett um, and the band uh, prepped for. It's called A Thousand Names. I think TJ pressured him into it from last week. Uh, It's incredible. Um, I would definitely recommend maybe just, I want to hear you sing. (laughs) I want to hear your voices. But if it takes being quiet to focus on the names of Jesus in the song, which are true, they're taken straight from Scripture then it, I'll put up with a little less volume from you. Because those names of Jesus, they, they stir your soul. They're true about him, and they speak victory over us this morning and every morning. This morning, as part of our worship, we're going to take communion. Thank you, Casey. If you weren't able to be with us last week, uh, we have brought back the tables up front with juice and loaf of bread. Uh, this is the second week since... March 15th of 2020 that we've been able to do this. We're very excited. Um, If you're still concerned about germs, we definitely have hand sanitizer and we still have some of the single-serve communion cups up here as well. But our participation in the event of communion 
It's an opportunity for us to worship because it's an opportunity for us to remember. The bread and the juice, they're elements of communion which represent the body and blood of this Savior King, this almighty, perfect, loving Savior. He allowed for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed to claim victory over your sin and over my sin. You don't have to do anything special to receive that victory other than submit and believe that that victory is for you. When we take, we remember that sacrifice and the victory it's secured. I also want to put before us this morning that when we eat the bread and drink the juice, we're engaging in this tradition that millions upon millions are doing this morning around the world. We're engaging in a tradition that has been practiced for thousands of years. This tradition doesn't save us but it is a beautiful proclamation of the salvation that we have received. If your faith is in Christ and as your savior, we would love for you to join us in taking communion this morning. You don't have to be a member to take here, but this is our act of worship, one of them. The rest of our acts of worship, they occur throughout the week because throughout the week, there are going to be many other things I'm sure maybe even things that you brought in with you this morning that you haven't been able to escape, whether through the songs or my speaking, that you just need to proclaim Jesus better than. So we're going to have opportunity to do that this morning. We receive some guidance about communion in particular from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul speaking, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand this morning? I'm gonna pray. God, your son is is magnificent and glorious. He is that way and has always been that way. Not just in the New Testament, but also in the old. God, help us to see and understand, God, that, that your love for us occurred even before our physical existence in this world came to be. God, the beauty and um, all-encompassing knowledge and wisdom and power that, that you exerted over nature and over souls and over death and over sin, God, that that can be something that, that you invite us into. God, let us see you as good and as beautiful. God, and let us just know that you are for us and that we are for you. Help us participate in this union. Let's worship this morning, amen.